When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With supply chains becoming more complex, you need to stay on top of the latest logistics developments. So if you work with logistics, you need the Beyond the Box podcast from Maersk. It's the easy way to keep up to date with everything from digital disruption in logistics to the need for supply chain resilience in today's market. Find out more and keep ahead of the game with the Beyond the Box podcast on logistics insights at maersk.com insights. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. On today's show, Megan Nolan, the novelist and journalist on her acclaimed book, Acts of Desperation. Megan Nolan's debut novel, Acts of Desperation, was hailed as a masterpiece by the literary world when it was published in 2021. Searingly honest and darkly amusing, it tells the story of a toxic relationship and the obsession, anxiety and self-doubt that ensues. Nolan is also a widely read journalist and essayist whose writing has appeared in The New Statesman, The Guardian and The New York Times. Our host today is fellow journalist and author Bella Mackey, whose recent books include the macabre satire How to Kill Your Family and a reflection on wellness Jog On. Here's Bella with more. Thank you for being with us, Megan. Thank you. You have been praised kind of across the globe for this book. That must have been kind of a weird, weird, weird experiment, weird experience. But the uh, review that I liked yesterday that I read was from a Goodreads review, which obviously as an author, you shouldn't read your own Goodreads review. (laughs) But someone said, this book made me feel very sad and very lonely. Five stars. (laughs) Which... (laughs) And I felt like that reading it because I, I felt, you know, I felt quite sad and lonely for my for my 24 year old self. So I wondered what it feels like to have a bunch of women come to you and say, oh, you wrote about my life. How does that feel? Yeah, I did. I mean, yeah, I know you shouldn't admit it, but I did also see that Goodreads review and uh, <laughs> and I really liked it too. Um, because, yeah, I do get a lot of people who say who like want to compliment the book and they say I enjoyed it. And then they kind of go, I don't mean it wasn't, you know, I, I don't mean enjoyment. I, you know, I experienced something. Yeah, I mean, it's a weird feeling to like uh, for for people to tell me anything private about themselves, and it always feels uh, like a real honor because I'm very nosy. So like anything anybody wants to tell me about their lives, I I want to hear, you know. And the fact that a lot of people are coming to me about things that happened to them. 10, 20, sometimes 30 years ago or more in a few cases, it's pretty amazing and uh, and like a real privilege to me to to hear those stories and to feel that I've given them any sort of uh, perspective or, or, you know, different angle on things that have happened to them. Did you know when you were writing it, though, that you were going to tap into this kind of inner, inner sort of psyche of women? Did you realise that that would happen? You didn't think, I've nailed this and women around the globe are going to kind of come up to me and say oh my goodness no no like the opposite really like the whole sort of reason that I wanted to write the book was that these thoughts and like impulses seemed so freakish to me and so uh unspeakable that that I I I thought I've got to get them out and like down somehow but I didn't see them as being relatable or um I mean so you know obviously some parts of the book are 
more universal and everyone's got a first love and everyone's got a first heartbreak and that sort of thing but but no the sort of more grotesque and ugly parts of it I, I I never expected anyone to relate to so that's been quite a comfort to me really that that anyone has yeah because it is quite a kind of radically honest book in many ways and I can see you saying you're nosy and you like hearing about other people but it felt like quite an intimate read for that character you know you felt like you really understood her and knew her and sometimes kind of felt taken aback by what she was saying and I figured that that must have been quite a I don't want to say traumatic book to write but a very intense book to write and a world that you'd created which was quite claustrophobic it's mainly just two people there's a lot of emotions going on there's a lot of kind of negativity how did it feel to actually sit in that world did you have to kind of take breaks and get out of it or did you kind Mm. of did you enjoy being in that place that you'd created? Sometimes I enjoyed it because it was so intense and I find like in everything in my life whether it's my work or the way that I like experience pleasure or art or culture or whatever, anything that I find really immersive, I, I'm very attracted to, even if it's a negative emotion that it makes. So when, when, it, when it was all working quite well and it was feeling very immersive to write it, I, I really enjoyed that quite a lot. But there was some time, especially in the first, so, so there was like, I think it was about three or four months, the first block that I spent writing it and it was more or less full time. And I was completely on my own. I had gone away from London and I didn't know anyone where I lived. And that was intentional so that I would concentrate and write the book. But it meant that I was so lonely because I was just with this story um, and and trying to like communicate with this past, past version of myself and try and like understand her and be kind to her in whatever way that I could. But um but it was like just me and this horrible version of myself. So it was like kind of a big confrontation in a way and uh, and quite distressing to try and be honest with myself about the sort of person I was. But that's really interesting that you were on your own because I think that that probably came through in the writing, you know, because because it is quite a lonely feeling and quite a lonely story. You know, she's kind of on her own despite this kind of intense coupledom that she's in. So I can see how actually, you know, the way you were writing on your own, you know, Mm. immersed in this world must have been that must have kind of seeped through into it yeah it was it was quite like I, I don't know if I would ever repeat it intentionally but it was quite a unique experience because it was um I, I was using this money that I'd gotten from a grant in Ireland that was it was like 1500 euros and I lived in London so I thought it you know it's not going to last very long in London so and I just I was just subletting a bedroom in London so I went to Greece and and sublet a very cheap place and tried to make the money last longer but the place like didn't have any internet for instance and it wasn't like in the heart of Athens it was in a suburb and you know it was just this quite weird specific circumstance where I had nothing and like no distraction but that that was obviously you know that's like what we all claim to really dream of as writers is that we have no distractions but obviously it's not really what what we truly want on a day-to-day basis so there was there was days where I was going completely, completely mad and I would I would like go to the internet cafe for 45 minutes and email my best friend to be like, can you email, Can sorry, can you post me a USB with like loads of Gilmore Girls on it because I literally can't even watch anything because I had no TV and no internet. <laughs> so it was absolutely, it was just so intense, but it, it was useful for sure. And I like listened to a lot of Miles Davis while I wrote and thought, you know, this is sort of, the sort of way that I want to want to write. So that was something, you know. It's kind of the picture perfect way of writing. Yeah. You know, that you get to listen to jazz and you're very solitary and you yeah, kind of, instead yeah. of the kind of real version, which is yeah. that you're kind of constantly watching Netflix and like yeah. looking at Instagram or whatever and sort of panicking. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So there are lots of themes in the book. And the one that I thought was, I mean, the one that I found so fascinating is that 
I think inherently both characters on the on the surface could come across as, come across as quite unlikable, mm-hmm. and instead you end up really you know lots of women, especially women, feel incredibly sort of akin to your female protagonist. And I wondered whether you had to decisively kind of treat her with kindness and with gentleness because you know you remember what it was like being that age, or whether it was because you realised that actually she could quite easily tip into a kind of you know, damaged, difficult trope of a woman and, and you you successfully avoided that. And I wondered, yeah, I wondered how you approached that. I didn't like her when I started writing the book and I started from a place of trying to expose her and to try and... It, it was some, some attempt to, like, stop victimising myself and to, like, show that even when bad things happen to you as a woman or to me as a woman, I mean... It's not an excuse for like bad behavior and manipulation and selfishness and all the other bad traits that the narrator has. Um, so that was like sort of the starting point was that I was trying to really expose her her bad points. And, and then as I got into it and also as I aged away from her, you know, further and further because the book took me a good few years to write, um, I sort of started to have a bit more sympathy for her, you know, and... Um, and and stopped being so total in my condemnation. So I, yeah, I, I still don't like her. Like I would never hang out with her. I would never want to be around her or anybody that that's uh, you know like in her orbit even because she's so she's so dependent in the book that and that's sort of uh, something that scares me off a lot now is people who have this very total dependence. But but I feel like towards the end of the book, I'm trying to like as the author take care of her a little bit and like make sure that by the end, it's not a big fairy tale happy ending, but make sure that she's got some sense that the world has interesting things in it and, and she'll sometimes find them, you know? Yeah, because it starts off quite kind of, you know, I'm not a victim, I'm kind of, I'm the agent of my own world and blah, blah, blah. And then by the end, you feel like you are giving her a shred of hope, sort of glimmers of something else. Because mm. it's interesting, because there's a lot of, there's a lot of blame and there's a lot of complicity in the book. And I feel like, my instinct, obviously, reading Kieran was to kind of yell at her and go, get away from this monster, you know, this terrible person. And and you you did something more interesting, you know, which is to explore a toxic, difficult relationship and explore why someone would stay in it. And also not to absolve her of, of any blame at all, which I thought is quite a tricky line to walk there. You know, obviously, being a woman, you're writing a woman, you know, and I know you're a feminist. So obviously, that's quite a difficult thing to do because the instinct is just to go get away you know or, mm. or to examine the aftermath and actually you're examining you're right in the middle of it and you know that's the bit that you're sort of interested in so what was that like yeah I think that sometimes we can kind of get get into sort of a morality play a little bit too much with with novels and art in general where there's action a and there's action b as a consequence of that and it's all quite neat and you know how to feel about it and obviously life is like rarely as clean clean coat as that so I I, I know exactly what you mean when you say like you just want to shake her out of it and remove, you know, you want to remove her. But I think maybe what I realized as I was writing it and, you know, and, and sometimes it was really difficult to like make keep making her do these awful, ha- have these terrible experiences willingly and to keep on, you know, trying to get something that was never going to come. And, and, and it was quite draining sometimes to write that. But eventually I realized that I wanted her to have this experience with him because there was like no other way for her to get out of the, the the way she was living before she met him and while she was with him. It needed to have, like she needed to have um, something concrete to prove to herself that love wasn't going to 
be the the savior for her and and that and that like making somebody live with her wasn't going to take away all her anxiety and all those things that she suspected would help and save her but in reality couldn't she sort of needed to have this terrible crescendo of 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 it all not you know of it all um exploding and not working out for her yeah that's really interesting that she sort of had to go on that journey you had to let the character kind of carry on to the end take it to its sort of inevitable conclusion and you're right about that sort of quite often we get you know quite moral in in our stories even even when we don't think we are you know we sort of Mm. we decide who's the hero and who's the sort of villain and I think he is quite clearly a villain but Mm. yeah you know but with for her, you know, there's there's still elements of blame. Definitely. It's interesting that you call it a love story. Do you think it's a love story? It's funny, yeah. I've been thinking about this a lot recently because, yeah, obviously, as I said earlier, like the more distance you get, the sort of I, I you, the, my perspective on the book is so totally different now than it was when I started it, and even when I finished writing it, I, I wanted to write it as a love story about about a love that that's like inexplicable from the outside, and to try, try and forensically dissemble it so that you can have some understanding of why these sorts of love affairs happen but now with like the advantage of a couple of years distance from from writing it I sort of think of the love story such as it is as like an incidental part of her trying to trying to find something and it happens to be that so I guess maybe for me now it's it's less a love a a book about love necessarily and more about you know methods that she's using to try and find a place for herself in the world and then this is one this relationship this love of hers is is just one of them that's really interesting because you gave an interview where you said it's partly a book about how about not knowing how to live in your own body and how Mm. you're sort of trying to find different ways of escaping and she uses kind of alcohol and self-harm and you know a a few other terrible coping mechanisms Mm. to try and get out of herself you know and I found that quite refreshing actually to to not have a kind of character who sort of uses, you know, the, the ways that we're all told to do that, you know, meditation or, you know, getting getting early to bed or whatever. And actually it's a much more realistic look at the ways that if you feel incredibly uncomfortable in yourself and your skin, the ways you actually try and get out of things. Mm. And for her, I think, you know, instead of it, it could have been love, it could have been something else, but love is the kind of intoxicating thing in your 20s. So I can kind of understand that. Definitely. And, and also um, lo- love is apparently, or like, ostensibly a good positive thing and obviously it 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 mostly and or can be often genuinely a good positive thing but compared to say drinking too much or eating too much or cutting herself like falling in love is about as um unimpeachable uh, a coping mechanism as as we have in society you know so it's like a, it's like a, a good one for her as a cover for how lost she's really feeling and yeah like exactly as you say that and and I, I know obviously people always mean well when they advise you know like exercise and and I I now do find exercise really helpful but 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 sometimes when you say those things to somebody you may as well be telling them like you have to go to the moon and then you'll feel better you know and I just remember those years in my early twenties when when I was so uncomfortable in my body and in my life and like the choices I had made there was I, I could I could not have sat in my apartment and read a book and gone to sleep at ten p.m. like it was physically not realistic to think that I would do that I needed like distraction and I needed movement and you know dynamism to like distract me from myself and I just couldn't do the sensible alternative so yeah that's definitely the 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 moment that she's in as well 
Yeah, I mean, it's sort of a classic thing for your mid-20s is that you're sort of, you know, you're sort of damaging yourself and it's fun and, you know, there's a whole host of things going on. Mm. And the love thing, I think, especially for women, you know, you're raised to think that, you know, love is the kind of be-all and end-all. And, you know, there's a quote where she says, you know, what would I think about now that I wasn't thinking about love or sex? And I think, you know, there is that thing of, you know, having a relationship is kind of the peak, you've hit the peak. And I remember, you know, I got married at 29 and I thought, I've I've won like I've won at life and then it was all over by 30 and then I thought oh Christ you know so I can sort of understand that thing of that that interesting age where you sort of don't know yet that love doesn't have to be the only thing you know mm. yeah and and I, it's such a difficult thing to wrap my head around even now because when you are in love and you're in a good relationship it is life-changing and you know a incredible force for good in your life when it works in and it's you know a part of a whole life rather than being your whole life uh, and it, it it was very confusing to try and like unlearn or unlearn that the, the idea that it can be the whole point of your life without totally rejecting it too because you know I think I went through a couple of years where I thought well okay now that I've learned men aren't going to be the point of my life I have to just be totally glacial and never leave room for love in my life and and I still sort of struggle with that about like recovering from being so uh, needy in my earlier life and I sort of struggle now to let myself like need at all openly. Yeah because she sort of sees men as, a, as something to conquer you know she she talks quite a lot in the beginning about she's going to make him hers you know she's going to make Kieran hers and then she talks about kind of she's made herself indispensable and it's almost like she will validate herself by being with Kieran you know that somehow this will this will mean that she's with this beautiful man, you know, this aloof, beautiful man who's in love with someone else. And that will mean that she has won. And I think that's that's an interesting thing to explore. And I imagine that you've had some experience of that. I mean, is that is that sort of something you drew on? Yeah, definitely. I think there's something about like, um, especially in, in the time in your life when you're really focused on perceptions of you and like images of yourself and what people see when they see you walking down the street. And I think we can kind of forget how strong an obsession that is when we're young. Like now, now that we're, uh, you know, probably largely out of that really hardcore obsession with people, the way people look at you. Like when I was a teenager and in my early 20s, I couldn't walk down the street without considering what everyone I passed was making of me. And having a boyfriend who I perceived to be, you know, very good looking, looked like he had a shit together, you know, just like looked like an aspirational person. That was sort of a shortcut to not having to worry about that all the time because there was somebody right next to you validating you because you think, well, he's attractive and he's chosen me. So automatically he's telling everyone else, he's like kind of broadcasting that I'm okay and I'm attractive. And yeah, obviously it's not a very like endurable, like it's, it's not a very durable coping mechanism with these things, but it, it does it does give you some temporary kind of pass that makes you feel like maybe you're you're going to do all right. Yeah, and she sort of uses not just Kieran, but kind of sex with other people for validation, you know. And mm. I was interested in the way that you wrote about kind of the, the other relationships she has where, you know, sometimes you feel like she's in control of the sex she's having and then sometimes you feel like she's slightly disassociating from it. But I think she still thinks that she's completely in control in that kind of maybe young female state where you think I'm sex positive and I'm a mm. feminist and I can do all of these things. And yet I felt like quite a lot of the time she wasn't actually enjoying it. Mm. And again, obviously it's not to shame anybody for any of these things, but like w when you're drunk all the time, as she is for a lot of the book, you know, obviously you, you're not making the decisions that you would necessarily make when you're not drunk. 
So, you know, I think there's several parts in the book where she's with some guy that she wouldn't be if she was sober. And, and it is because she uh, has an urgent need to feel okay about herself. And so she goes along with it. But you can tell it's not something that is giving her either pleasure or or even really the validation that she's there for. It's just something that happens. And because she's in this state of pure immediacy from her drunkenness and, and her needs, it's all just sort of happening to her. And she, as you're saying, like probably wakes up thinking, you know, sort of brassily thinking, uh, oh, well, you know, I do what I want. And I did that last night. And I wanted to do that last night. And that's true in, in a way, but it's not without its consequences as well. Um, and yeah, obviously you see that more and more as she goes on, that she's being drained of her energy by all these encounters in a way as well. Yeah. And it sort of starts to work less and less for her. Mm. And, that, and, you know, there's a one point she says, you know, while she was having sex with a man, I think, I think a stranger in a club that she said she'd never felt more herself mm. in that moment. And I thought that is delusional. You know, you are mm. sort of, you're trying to empower yourself through this, this thing. And again, not to shame anyone, but it's just, it's, if she was enjoying it, that would be fantastic. But it feels kind of heartbreaking yeah. that she's not. I wondered what writing the sex scenes was like. <laughs> <laughs> it was sort of fun, actually. I didn't find them like difficult to write or too like slow to get through or anything. Um, but they're quite... They're quite raw, right? Yeah. I mean, they're quite, you know, the kind of, the kind of, maybe the kind of drunken sex that everyone has had in their 20s, which kind of, you know, doesn't often get written about. I thought it was, I thought it was an interesting, I hadn't read anything like that before. Yeah, I don't, yeah, I don't, I don't, honestly didn't think very much about it before I was doing it because, because I knew that like, um, in the same way that drinking and love and everything else is, is a way for her to cope with the world. So was sex, you know, so it wasn't something that I had to like consciously think, how am I going to strategize to make these sex scenes good? It was just like, yeah, as you're saying, like that, that is the sort of sex a lot of people have when they're mm. young, young and drunk a lot of the time is, is, is that sort of like quite gross and often quite embarrassing sex. And, and, you know, I had enough of it to be able to, to write it convincingly, obviously, but, and, and also to be fair, I think by the time the book was coming out, I had written a bit about sex in my journalism. So I'd sort of, already had a couple of like a, like a hurdle of the first time you, that you have the to seal. be yeah 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah no I just found it interesting obviously as from her as a character you know the way she uses sex to kind of escape and validate herself and I just thought it was a really interesting part of the book because quite often I, I was sort of wincing as I was reading it you know that sort of thing where it makes you feel uncomfortable and I think that goes back to what you said at the beginning which was you know Obviously, people are going to come and tell you that they loved your novel and they enjoyed your novel. But I think sometimes you can say, I thought your book was brilliant. I didn't necessarily enjoy the reading of it mm. because it's quite an uncomfortable book. You know, it's quite a challenging book. You know, lots of people say, oh, my goodness, I thought Megan Nolan's novel was fantastic, but it made me feel very uncomfortable or it made me feel kind of exhausted. You yeah. Know? And and I think, you know, that's that's obviously that's fine. But I guess that's quite a, a, a unique thing to have people kind of say. <laughs> yeah, it is. And it's funny because it's like it's it's like it's maybe like half of what I set out to do is is that I just <laughs> I just really wanted somebody to have an experience with the book and like a genuine you know an actual lived experience rather than just sort of uh, observing coldly you know like so sometimes you read novels that are very fine in style and like very intelligent and very beautiful even but they're quite observational and they're quite removed from their subject matter and I, I always knew like, A, I don't think I'm able to write a novel like that, but B, actually what I like the most is to be immersed in things, as I said earlier. So like really what I want is to write a novel that 
people feel like they're living with in a genuine way and they have a real experience with it. That's not to say that I wanted I wanted to write a novel that made people feel sad and uncomfortable, but you know that's what this one happened to be. And like I'm kind of hoping that someday I'll write a novel that's like immersive but makes people happy or like at least not miserable. <laughs> yeah, the next one could be a romantic comedy. This yeah. one, no. But you're completely right in that you know I totally I totally got that from the book, which was that I felt a lot of things and I carried on feeling them for you know it's that that thing with a brilliant book where you feel them two weeks later and it's not necessarily about kind of you know the plot or anything it's to just to do with the emotions that you're feeling and I think your book has somehow struck a chord with so many people sort of across the board whatever they think about the book they all say like this book has really stayed with me mm. and that's I can think that's an amazing thing that you you wanted to do it and and it worked I think that's a real <laughs> success I think there were some quotes in the book that I sort of wanted to pull up with you. So mm. there was one that I, I laughed at and then I winced at where she says, he kept touching me and eventually I did what I had to do to stop him from wanting to have sex with me, which was to have sex with him. And I wondered if we could talk a little bit about the final moments in her and Kieran's relationship, which mm. I think that felt to me like a sort of, I felt sort of winded when I was reading that. Um, mm. And I wondered if that was how you felt there was if, if you felt that was the inevitable conclusion to their relationship and to her sort of self-sabotage and to everything that was unraveling it was just it's a very violent ending and I wondered mm. if you could talk about sort of why you wrote it like that yeah I think that I didn't have it planned out that it would definitely end in that in that with that specific scene of violence but I did sort of know that it had to end in in some quite concrete and also dramatic way for her to have the momentum to leave the relationship so I guess I had um I, ha I had planned that there would be something about him uncovering her secrets you know with the diaries and I think that was in my head um already that that he would kind of suddenly and and quickly see her most private and you know shameful secrets and and private desires and things like that that she'd been hiding from him and then it, it just sort of um when I was writing it escalated and it seemed to work at, in that moment um to to make sense of 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 the clean break I, I honestly don't know if I would write that I don't think I would write it that way again if I was to write the novel now but that's um that's that's life um but yeah I think I think no, that, but it, it made yeah. sense I mean it's not that it didn't make sense it wasn't it didn't come out of left field but I mean it made sense because it echoes his kind of almost hatred for her right I mean that he yeah. sort of seems to dislike her actually yeah. at some points yeah and I think I think that it's it's definitely a moment where you know like a lot of her life with him is spent hiding her true nature to to try and be liked by him and then there's this horrifying moment where all of that attempt that's been going on for years now is actually rendered pointless in in the space of a few minutes when he's read these diaries and can kind of see the real her and and yeah just like the, the horror of that taking place maybe would have been enough even but 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 seemed to be part of this um yeah like unveiling of them both where her real self is there and then also his real hatred for her is also there and like that's the first time they're kind of truly in the same room together being, you know, in in that sense. That's so interesting. Did you think about Kieran a lot when you were writing it? Because I think everyone is obsessed with the protagonist, who I just keep calling her, yeah. because she is nameless. But did you think about, I mean, I'm, obviously you're the writer, you, you gave him thought, but, you know, to me, he is kind of incidental because I'm so invested in her story. But what were your thoughts about him as you were writing it? 
Yeah, I think I I thought about him as an object of very desire mostly, and and like I I I like imagined the way he looks and and like the way that he would make her feel more than more than I imagined his inner life. But then a little bit more so, there's a few bits that um that that I like that didn't that didn't end up in the book that are to do with him and and his life um and and there needed to be like some sort of background for why not not even a reason why he is the way he is but but some sort of context for the the nat- for his his manner and his his coldness and his like refusal to be intimate with her and uh and so i i had some thoughts about that and his and his family background that might relate to that uh, which you know there's a very very small amount of in the book but um but no i would say primarily i thought about him in relation to her rather than than um you know like a, a big project of his own so sort of through her eyes which is interesting because obviously we see her kind of innermost thoughts and she's so honest and she's you know she's so insightful about herself in many many ways there are ways in which she's you know she's not um but there are ways in which you're sort of astounded at how honest she's she can be with herself about her failings and her desires and her wants and and so we're allowed to see this kind of whole person and then with him it's not he's not a cipher he's not a kind of two-dimensional character but I, I did wonder looking back on it how much I'd absorbed of her and how little I'd thought about him except to think you bastard you know <laughs> I didn't consider you know whether you know his his upbringing had affected him I just sort of thought you're a bastard and I wondered I did wonder whether you'd sort of so you did you gave him a backstory but he didn't deserve much more I think probably <laughs> yeah he was definitely always going to function as you know the ultimately incidental point of of her of her feelings you know um and also i think that yeah like i i mean it it happened to be him but i think the story could have been her and and probably any number of other people in dublin and and it just happened to be him so and and also finally the book was always intended to be like uh, sort of almost um insistently one person's perspective so i think it would just make it such a different book if i was to try and start giving his perspective on things or to to rationalize things from his his view you know um so yeah i was never going to go too deeply into him i'm just going to read you another quote for all our cardinal sins seeking attention is up there and she's talking about women seeking attention mm. i thought that was just brilliant that you know that the idea that women seeking attention is kind of you know one of the worst things we can do and obviously she acts out in many ways you know which mm. which make other people feel distaste and yeah. i wondered i wondered about your writing process with that yeah, I think it was um, something I had read. I had read the Leslie Jameson book, The Empathy Exams, not that long before I started writing the book. And in that, she talks a lot about behave, like acting out behaviors which people decry by saying you're just looking for attention. And she has this response, which is sort of like, um, well, yeah, and maybe I need the attention, you know. And even if it's a an ugly way of getting it, there's the, the, it's not it's not actually an inherently evil thing to want attention and uh I think I mean and I get the sort of you know what's the word like uh I get people being weary about reading the same sorts of subject matter over and over again or the same like register of confessional journalism over and over again and like I'm I'm as tired of that and I've written enough of it that I'm tired enough of writing it but that doesn't mean that I think people are wrong to to need to speak about things and and to get a response about them as well. Even if um on you know people can individually dislike the manner in which we do that, but it's not you can't say that it's wrong to need attention. I don't think. 
Yeah, no, no, no. I mean, it reminded me a lot of Good Morning Midnight by Jean Reese. Have mm. you read it before you? Yeah. No, actually, after my my agent gave me a present of it when, when I had finished the book because she said I'd find it interesting, yeah. I'm glad that you didn't read it before because I feel like, yeah, it's it's one of those sort of wonderful coincidences when you read a book afterwards. And did you yeah. see some kind of similarities? Did you see sort of some threads that you felt kind Definitely, of you yeah. understood? Yeah, and it's really, as you say, it's so nice when you do that afterwards and you can be sure that you haven't like cribbed it, you know. <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I loved that. I was saying that completely from a writer's perspective because yeah. that happened with my last book and I really? read a book afterwards and went, I am so glad that I didn't <laughs> read this before because now I can enjoy it without panicking. Yes. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp, because whether you're thinking about challenges big or small, let's not dress it up, life can be pretty stressful. So it's healthy to have a place to discuss those thoughts and share what's on your mind. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. We've heard from plenty of the biggest thinkers on psychology and wellness on this podcast, and it's clear that therapy doesn't always have to be solely about addressing some big scary trauma. It could just be a way to learn a few new coping skills and empower you to become the best version of yourself. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime with no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash intelligence today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash intelligence. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. I'm going to ask you one more question and then I'm going to hand over because there's some brilliant questions. But um, I want to know, she goes to Greece and I know obviously that's threaded throughout the novel, but you know, that's where she ends up. You Mm -hmm. know, I wondered if you felt like she really has realised that love and sex is not, is not the only thing and that she can't be validated by men all the time. Do you think she really has changed her kind of mentality? Do you think that the breakup with Kieran did did fix something or change something in her view? What do you think she was sort of, Mm. what do you think, do you have hope for her? Did you think this is going to work out? Yeah, I do. Insofar as I I don't think that she had some sort of really amazing revelation where she suddenly felt full of confidence and full of self-sufficiency. The way that I see it, I suppose, is that it's all exhausted her so terribly trying to do, trying to pursue this idea that being in love with somebody will save her and it's all gone so disastrously wrong for her that I just see her as having depleted her ability to try that all the time. 
And I think she's going to have to try something else now. I don't think she's like really empowered all of a sudden, but I just think she's sort of out of options and she needs to try another option now. <laughs> That's brilliant. So it's an exhaustion rather than a kind of sudden seeing yeah. the light moment. Okay, good answer. All right, let's go to some questions because there are some really good ones here, especially this one from Harriet, which I was going to steal earlier, but I'm too kind. <laughs> so what's the single biggest compromise that you had to make in order to get this book published, whether it be the plot, the characters or your lifestyle? So I was very lucky in terms of plot and characters. I'd, I only had very supplemental editing rather than taking away anything. It was quite, it, it, it was and is quite a short book. So my agent and editors uh, only ever really suggested adding in extra context. So I didn't have to lose anything that I was very attached to. In terms of lifestyle, it was quite a lot of sacrifice, not in any sort of, you know, it's, it's a bit funny using the word sacrifice because you feel like you, you should really Yeah, be... you're not a coal miner. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. You, it's fine. Without, yeah. you know, with that caveat. Yeah, yeah. So when I was writing it, I really had absolutely no money at all. Like I was making about like £12,000 a year at the time when I started writing it. And I sacrificed like having a nice life for a, a while. And I, and I did have a nice life sometimes, but when when you don't make a lot of money and your leisure time is very precious to you for that reason and you want to like enjoy your friends and go for a drink with your boyfriend or whatever it is and you have to work more uh, you know it's it's hard to convince yourself to do that so so yeah over the course of the three or three or so years that I took to write it there was quite a few times where as a naturally extremely sociable person who more or less always wants to be hanging out with my friends it felt like I'd, I have no idea if this is worth doing and you know, why am I having, um, why am I adding to the immediate stress of my life as a person who works a lot and doesn't make any money by adding this into the mix? So yeah, I suppose it was that. It was just like... It was your own life, yeah. Yeah, I sacrificed going to the pub with my friends. (laughs) And the characters got everything that they wanted. Yeah. Good. Well, that's good because that leads us on to the next question, which is, were you nervous about the novel's reception? That's from Jade. And I will just piggyback onto that and say, has the reception been incredibly overwhelming and slightly frightening because it's been so positive that I imagine that, you know, you probably, I'm guessing, thought that, you know, your mum and dad would read it, your friends might read it, you might get one review and then suddenly it's this kind of global success and I feel like that must have been terrifying. But go with Jade first. I'm sorry, Jade, to have piggybacked onto that. Was I nervous? No, it was, it's, it's a funny one because it's all quite contingent on COVID stuff because if you, if you remove COVID from the equation, I was just very excited for it to come out when I first sold the book. And then when COVID began, that was about a year. It was roughly a year between COVID beginning and when my book was published. And so I just spent a lot of that year not really knowing what was going to happen and if it would be published at that time and and also then dreading the lack of a celebration or like the lack of a launch and all that sort of thing. I was just thinking about practicalities more than about what the actual reception would be like. I genuinely didn't, like the the day that we had a first review, I was like, I hadn't even remembered that there might be reviews. I hadn't really thought about that at all. So I wasn't nervous. I was just sort of um, annoyed that I couldn't have a party. Fair enough. (laughs) But but no, I I think I was most nervous sending it to my parents and um, and not because I thought they, they would like be judgmental, but just because they supported me through a lot of like crappy times in my life and I wanted them to like see that I had tried and finished something finally because I'd like quit so many things in my life. But yeah, about the actual reception, I wasn't very nervous. But yes, as you're saying, Bella, then it was a, it was an absolutely surreal surprise for all of that to happen and, and in such strange circumstances where I was like alone in my flat for the whole time and 
and it yeah it was it was it was absolutely mind bending and kind of still is quite often yeah but in a good way now do you feel like you're sort of you feel like you're accustomed to it and you're sort of okay yeah. with it I'm, I'm quite anxious sometimes and so like if I'm having a bad day of anxiety sometimes I don't feel very well able to like do stuff like this if I'm if I was having a bad day today I'd probably be suffering quite a lot right now but you know that's that that will be true of any work that I might be doing not just writing so overall I I'm I feel like really lucky and great yeah well that's I'm glad about that I'm glad because I feel like it definitely could be anxiety provoking Mm. all right do you think this is this person is making an assumption here (laughs) do you think that your inspiration for Kieran has read the book and how would he understand this interpretation of himself and the relationship? So was there one interpre- one person or was it an amalgamation of people? Yeah, no, genuinely there's, on? yeah, there, no, there's, there's genuinely not a, a, a Kieran, uh, but definitely there are a couple of people that I went out with who would recognize like parts of a, an incident that takes place or parts of a personality trait, but they yeah, they're so kind of dispersed and changed in the character that I don't think it could terribly offend anyone as far as I know. I don't know if I'm like, I'm not, I'm not like enemies with any of those people, but I wouldn't be close enough with them to ask them if they've read it. And also I wouldn't want to like patronize, patronize them by like assuming that they would care as well, you know? Yeah, I think we've all got a Kieran X, and I think, exactly. I think the, jo- the joke about Kieran's is that they probably wouldn't recognize themselves in it because they wouldn't have the insight. <laughs> They'd be like, oh, yeah, I am very handsome. Thank you. <laughs> and then they'd stop reading it. This is interesting. Has your relationship with the book changed since you've seen other people's reactions to it? I think that's really interesting. I assume some people pick out things in it that, you know, you didn't necessarily, you weren't necessarily thinking about or, you know, mm. they take something from it that you didn't, you know, you didn't expect. Yeah, definitely. There's, I, I think there's, uh, well, my, my, my relationship to the book has changed totally. And I'm just trying to figure out like how much of that is to do with just me getting older or and how much is to do with other people's reception to it because the character is like an exaggerated slightly more horrid version of my prior self I when people like criticize her loads I I tend to like mentally distance myself from her further as a coping mechanism I suppose so like probably I feel a lot less um I don't identify with her anymore in the way that I probably did pretty much up until I finished writing it in 2019, 2018, 19, whatever it was. So yeah, I guess like I don't, I don't really feel like it, it bears much um, me- meaning on my current life anymore is the biggest change probably. So you sort of exercised it by writing it and, yeah. and sort of sending it away. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But also maybe like a family member, other people can't criticize her, but you can. Yeah, you exactly. Know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're quite, you know, you're protective of her, not because she's you, but because you sort of, you have yeah. that link. And I don't, I don't like when, what does bother me sometimes is when people point out things that she does that are, that are manipulative or ugly and act as though I wrote them as without knowing that, you know, like um, mm. when people say, oh, when she, you know, there's, there's a particular bit where she um, like locks herself in the bathroom when they're having an argument and she's self-harming and somebody uh, was like, what a disgustingly manipulative thing to do. And like, and I agree with that, but like, that's part of the book, you know, like it's not, it, that's not meant to be like, and we're now going to take a moment to be very sad for her tragic sorrow in that moment. It's obviously yeah. intended to highlight a lot of different things at once. So I guess that's the only thing that really, that really like grinds my gears is when people think I don't, I didn't mean for her to be dislikable, you know? I think the funniest thing about this sort of such a trend for unlikable female characters, you know, female protagonists who are unlikable and then constant articles about them. And yet quite often the people who are writing those articles dislike female, dislike 
the dislikable female characters. They're sort of affronted that there are such a thing. They're writing about how many there are. And they're like, but this is terrible. You know, she's awful. And you're like, that's the point. I wrote it like that. Yeah, (laughs) yeah. All right, let's go to another question. Um, Oh, this is, okay, this is a long question. I loved the book and wondered whether part of what it does is kick against the mainstream interpretation of feminism as personal empowerment and you go girl and the idea that young women should be confident, sorted, etc. when in reality this is still very difficult to do in a patriarchal society. It's an interesting mm. long question if you want to if you want to comment on that. Yeah, I think that definitely I didn't I didn't like think about feminism like the word feminism when I was writing it very much except for in my separate life where I do think about that quite a lot, but definitely the intention of the book was, was partly to show the failings of those teachings in, insofar as they've like worked out materially and, and in practice in, even in the most privileged of people, like, well, you know, like I'm, like I grew up absolutely fine in pretty much every way. And, and even so still sort of managed to be quite deformed by expectations that evaded the aims of like what feminism was was setting out to do to like help us stop feeling that we needed to be with the man to be all right in our lives so definitely it was like in in the back of my mind that I wanted to like think about how that was possible and it's not as though I've solved that question but but it was something especially like I grew up with a very feminist mom and like she would never have suggested that I needed to be with somebody to be happy and and um and I think that shows just how pervasive it still is that the idea that you need to be in love to be happy it, that it managed to even get through all those nets of feminism you know um and and yeah I think that the the sort of empowerment feminism it doesn't have uh, it, it 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 can obviously be quite thin and uh and and not very substantial and and um and I don't feel very empowered by it probably <laughs> yeah and it can leave you feeling like a failure if you're not empowered by it and yeah. I think quite often in the book she compares herself to other women and she doesn't think she's again it's it's not just the man thing it's the fact that she doesn't think she's thin enough mm. and you know she's kind of constantly thinking you know am I am I am I thin enough am I lovable enough all of these things that you're right you know you think there are layers of feminism that you it might have caught those things you know but obviously mm. we're all susceptible to it all the time it doesn't mm. sort of make a difference okie dokie let's go on to another question oh this is an interesting question I th- I wondered about this about my books as well. Do you know if many men have read Acts of Desperation and roughly what's their reaction been? <laughs> it's hard to quantify, isn't it? But yeah, obviously it's like loads less, lo- many, many fewer men. I would say maybe like 10% of the people who post or write to me about it are men, maybe even less than that. Oh, yeah, I was going to say 10% seems like quite a lot. Yeah, <laughs> yeah that is probably quite ambitious, yeah. M- most people are quite nice and polite to me. I don't get I don't get a lot of, like, hate mail or anything. So, so like, any any man who's spoken to me about it has been only doing so to tell me that they enjoyed or that they liked it or they got something from it and, and think it's a good book, really. Um, I haven't got into, like, loads of really in-depth discussions with, with, with men about it, but, but also I think in in this way we sort of suffer from the lack of live events where like I, I, I just wouldn't necessarily bother to like engage in an Instagram DM conversation with somebody about my book but in person these things tend to be more organic so like possibly I will in the future speak to more men about it but I, it, it was it was um noted in this uh this writer called um, Kevin Power in Ireland wrote, wrote a sort of essay about my book and about the reviews of my book. 
And there was, I think there was like 95% of the people who reviewed it were women. And obviously it's, it's uh, targeted at what women, when you look at the marketing for it, I would say. Yeah. I mean, I guess the cover is kind of pink and there's a kind of very beautiful girl on it, but you know, I mean, you wouldn't, you wouldn't, that's marketing, isn't it? And marketing is something that you have no control over because my book is also pink and yeah. You know, I didn't. I didn't ever set out to write a book just for women, but it no. sort of it does end up that quite predominantly, quite often, you realise you have a female audience. Or I guess for you, especially that you get compared to other writers, mm-hmm. you know, who are sort of a similar age to you and writing something similar. And you know, they keep there's lots of talk about millennial novels, you mm-hmm. know. And I wondered how you feel about that because I imagine it's it's tiresome to kind of constantly be bracketed with a bunch of other women who might be writing you know, they're writing other good books, but they're not the same book as yours. And I think that, to me, feels reductionist. Mm. I was trying to think about this recently, I guess. Maybe it just happens in every generation that people have to group people together in in the same way they would have done with, you know, I don't know, the Amoses and the Hitchens of this world. Like, you know, they have to say the people who are coming up at the same time have relationships to one another, which they just don't always have. And, like, there's some writers who are around my age who I really worship and revere a lot but I, I I'm I'm not really able to write like my favorite sort of books yet so I would say like anyone that I love the most as a writer I, I, I don't have any actual similarity to or relationship to in terms of style probably but yeah and, and there's a couple of them that are on a more prosaic level they're about young people in Dublin having sex and being in relationships and stuff like that and you know, you, you understand why those comparisons are made because it's in a way similar subject matter. But then you can just be so broad about that where, you know, you, you can also say, OK, people in America who are in marriages and that's like, you know, so yeah, many yeah. different novels. So it does it does seem like a bit of a redundantly universal way to, to think about it. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting that you say you don't you can't yet write the books that you love reading. Is that what you said? Mm. Explain what yeah. you mean by that. yeah. Well, I guess like at the moment, the the way that I'm best at writing is probably like focusing on quite specific things and then really, really like narrowing in on them and, and hopefully like describing them to the best of my ability and making quite an intense experience. But the sort of books that I like to read a lot are quite uh, expansive and like world building and and they have, you know, they have like whole communities in them. And I, and I really love to read things like that more than anything else. So... This is a good idea. It's good, good time for our next question. Are you writing another novel? I know you are. And I'm going to tack on again. I'm going to piggyback. Apologies. Because the first novel is that kind of claustrophobic, mainly just a two-person relationship. Are you going to try and open that up and build your own worlds and your own communities? Is that what you're going to do? Are you going to attempt it? Yeah, not, not, <laughs> yeah, a little bit. <laughs> not, not quite. Like I'm not, I'm not, I'm not confident enough to like go straight into trying to do a whole you know, Dickensian or or like Elizabeth Strout, really, you know, elaborate, great community style thing that I love to read. I'm not quite there yet, but but yeah, definitely it's um it's like a bridge between those two extremes, uh, what I'm trying to do next. It 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 has, you know, like a, a maybe maybe like six major characters and and several different settings and stuff like that. So it's a little bit more expansive than than this than this first one. And Will it be in the first person or the third person? Because someone is asking, you know, how come you decided to write Acts of Desperation in the first person, which which makes sense to me while you did the, the decision that you made. Yeah, I think with Acts of Desperation, it was just it was never going to be any other way because it was meant to be her perspective. And like I, I wanted the reader to be so totally saturated in her perspective. This next one is in the third person at the moment. So that might 
change up or maybe I'll have I'll have like several different kinds of perspective who knows but at the moment it's all in third person and how's it going is it does it feel different now that you've written a novel and you've had one under your belt and you've done really well or is it like the kind of difficult second album where you're feeling kind of you know slightly hamstrung and paralyzed by the whole the whole thing I don't I don't feel like a lot of pressure to it's not it's not like the classic second difficult second album thing but I think um I do have to sort of forcibly forget all of my career context every time I sit down to write this next novel because I just think like I don't ever want to be writing things in what I'm thinking about like careers and money and like I I kind of just need to make myself remember what it was like and like why I started writing when I was a kid and why I want to do it all. Does it feel quite hard though to be able to shake off that kind of element of you know because obviously you know in practice good good idea but hard to do to kind of go I'm not thinking about reviews or readers or what they liked about the first novel. Mm. You know, I, I think that's, I mean, for me personally, I'm finding that quite, quite difficult. Yeah, definitely. The main, the main thing for me is like, I, I really, really don't want to disappoint my agent and my editor because they both like took a gamble on me and they both really spent a lot of their wisdom and time on me and helped to make this book a success. So I would hate to now let them down and to write something that isn't worthy of their time. So I think about that quite a lot. That's nice. I mean, presumably they're just very excited to have anything on deadline, which is all an agent or an editor ever wants. It's just for it to be. Is it on deadline, Megan? Is it on deadline? It yeah. is. Yeah, yeah. Have you handed in your yeah, first draft? Well, yeah. No, I've, but I'm, I think I'm on target too. It's not far off now, and the yeah, the the deadline is soonish. So will it be out when will we expect to read it? 2023. Yeah, I think that's the aim, but I've got no idea how. I mean, they might want to change everything, so it it could be longer. But I think 2023 is the is the current target. Yeah. And I assume you're not taking yourself off to Greece and writing it for four months without any internet or television. I assume that you're doing that within the scope of your normal life here. Now, is that how you're writing with sort of your journalism jobs and everything else going on at the same time? Yeah, yeah. So I'm just here. I work from home mostly, but then I've got a couple of short little. Um, time time brackets away in between now and when the deadline is so I've got like two weeks on a residency in March so I'm hoping that I'll be wrapping it up then and I'll be able to just do some edits at that point. So no no more isolation kind of feeling completely alone and desperate for Gilmore Girls then? I don't know I I, I do think I, I, I wouldn't mind a little bit of that at some point in the in the next year or so if, if I if I do have say like really intensive edits to do I think it might be an idea to get back to oh god you've pre, not put yourself no, off no that. internet you put me off that for life. I'm always threatening to go away and write on my own. And now I'm thinking not in a million years. All right, Megan, thank you so much. That was such a fascinating conversation. Oh, I'm thrilled to be able to talk about it with you because actually what I always want when I've, when I've read a brilliant book is I want to be able to message the author and discuss it with them as if they're my friend. <laughs> so it was really exciting to be able to do this with you. So thank you, oh, thank so, you so much, much to Megan Nolan. Um, thank you to the audience for your questions and thank you to Intelligent Squared for hosting this event. 